0: Hello and welcome to ECNM on Air, a podcast series from ECNM magazine that shares industry intelligence, insights and opinions on all topics electrical. I'm your host Ellen Parson, editor in chief of ECNM, and I'm here today with some industry experts from Black and Beach to discuss highlights from their new 2022-23 Electric Report titled Rethinking the Modern Grid. ECM on Air is one of the many benefits available to our members-only portal, which offers exclusive member benefits and premium content that's hand-selected by our editorial team. If you're interested in finding out more, you can register on our website, ecmweb.com in the drop-down menu under Premium Content. And if you're listening on a podcast app, please check our website for the links mentioned in this podcast. You can find it in the Premium Content area. So today I'm talking with Dale Claudel, Jason Rowell, Leslie Ponder, and Kevin Ludwig of Black & Beach. So thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves and their roles briefly before we jump right into the discussion. Uh, Dale, would you like to begin?
1: Sure, and thank you, Ellen, for having us. I'm Executive Vice President of Energy Utilities at Black and & Veatch, and to provide some background, Black & Beach uh, primarily serves our clients by segments, organized by industry, and also by solutions, which are organized by technology. And so I'm responsible for bringing all the solutions that our company offers to our energy utility clients. Uh, that would also include independent power producers, developers, and OEMs. And so today I'm joined by subject matter experts within our solutions organizations. Uh, They provide industry leading thought leadership and they also deliver the solutions that we offer, including engineering procurement and construction of those solutions that are needed by our clients. So with that, I'll turn over to Jason.
2: Thank you, Dale. I'm Jason Rowell, uh, Vice President and Sustainable Process Solutions Leader at Black & Beach. So I have responsibility of taking existing fuels and renewables and working through the processes to convert those to clean energy, uh, notably hydrogen, carbon capture, uh, and sustainable liquid fuels. Leslie?
3: Hi, I'm Leslie Ponder, and I'm a solutions leader for both grid automation and advanced energy storage for Black & Beach. For grid automation, I'm responsible for modernizing the distribution grid um, to, to provide automation uh, for how that grid operates, and for advanced energy storage, I focus on some of the emerging technologies around energy storage that isn't necessarily batteries, so non-lithium-ion solutions like thermal, mechanical, or other b- battery chemistries like flow batteries or iron, air, or those types of things. Kevin?
4: I thanks. Uh, Kevin Ludwig, and I'm vice president and grid solution portfolio leader at Black & Veatch. I lead all of our solution development and delivery as it relates to grid uh, we we term grid across multiple different facility types so that's uh overhead transmission underground transmission substations distribution both overhead and underground um, along with private communication networks and we also offer services on all those facility types and you know, seeing tremendous growth in the industry, a lot with our decarbonization uh, transition that we're, we're in the midst of and uh, look forward to the discussion today.
0: Well, thank you very much. So now that we know a little bit more about our guests, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, first off, I wanted to just talk about the new report from Black & Beach, which is very comprehensive. Uh, it's based on a survey of roughly 250 U.S. power industry stakeholders. And we will go ahead and post a link to that when we post this podcast so that ECNM readers and listeners can definitely access that report. It's, it's very, very good. It's, it's about 47 pages, I think. So there's a lot of detailed information in there that we won't be able to get into today, but it's going to be very important you know, for the grid modernization topic to come. So I wanted to bring this group together today to weigh in on the survey results And provide some perspective on how they think some of these results may affect uh, the electrical industry in general, as well as ECM readers and listeners specifically. So let's start with, um, you know, one of the questions, the main questions uh, at the beginning of the survey, it identified the most challenging issues facing the electric industry in those respondents regions. And the top answers for that were renewable integration, aging infrastructure, and environmental regulations. So could you all put these concepts into layman's terms, kind of, and give us an overview of how, what this might mean for the industry going forward?
1: Well, certainly, I'll take that one. Um, You know, and I think it might be helpful for uh, your readers if I provide some context behind the three challenges that you cited uh, from our survey respondents. Um, You know, first off, I just want to acknowledge that this is a really exciting and a transformative time to work in the electric industry, no matter what your role is. Um, When you think about it, societies, both domestically and also globally, you know, they're increasingly wanting to source their electricity generated from sustainable solutions to combat, you know, the damaging impacts of climate change that we're seeing more frequently today than ever before. You know, But at the same time, our aging electricity grid, it requires major investment to ensure the reliability of the grid and to permit um, us to be able to put what is increasingly more distributed uh, renewable resources on the grid. And in fact, I was looking just the other day, uh, back in May, Reuters reported that power outages have more than doubled in the past six years compared to the previous six according to, uh, to their exter- you know, their examination of uh, federal data. So really beyond investing to improve, improve grid reliability, our clients are focusing much more today on the technology and the investments that also improve resiliency. And that will enable the grid to withstand these climate-driven uh, events such as droughts, floods, wildfires, and hurricanes. You know, I'd also say that innovations in technology are enabling Black and & Beach and the industry more broadly. To transform the grid to achieve these objectives. Uh, So for uh, utilities and energy consumers, the clean energy transition, it really necessitates the deployment at scale of mass-produced technologies of distributed energy resources. So for example, like EVs, rooftop solar, heat pumps, and building efficiency upgrades, all of that is included. And I can certainly think of no other time in the course of my 25-year career where advances in technology are enabling this industry to transition to clean energy. It's, It's a really, really exciting time. And so all of this opportunity, it really creates the challenges that the industry faces. First, as you noted, integrating renewables into the grid. Well, utilities today are primarily decarbonizing using solar. And one of the stats from our report uh, revealed that 86% of respondents to our survey who are decarbonized are, are doing so uh, primarily with solar. Uh, renewables such as solar and wind, we all know that those are intermittent resources. Uh, but they're also distribution connected in addition to transmission connected, which was typically the model in uh, the U.S. electric grid. So the challenge with integrating these resources is the ability to visualize them, to understand what they're putting out and when they're doing that, uh, to be able to operate them and to control them. When you think about aging infrastructure from an industry perspective, the move from centralized generation to a more distributed model is challenging. Um, you know how the grid functions and how it must be how it must be managed. Uh, moving these assets closer to the edge of the grid is changing where that supply, of, so that balance of supply and demand, has to be maintained, um, which was typically done in the transmission system, and increasingly now it's going to be done in the distribution system. So that requires new technologies to be able to understand how that current is moving throughout the grid and to be able to control. You know, this energy flow in a multi directional flow rather than just from a centralized generating source to transmission to distribution and then the end use customers. You know, and finally, on aging infrastructure, I'd say, you know, many utilities out there, they still have poles and wires that are 60 years old or more. Uh, They just simply were not built to withstand the types of extreme weather that we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, more commonly today than ever before. Um, The third area was environmental regulations, and the impact that that has, it, it really is transforming the generation mix towards sustainable sources of electricity generation, and so as you move from those high carbon sources such as carbon to renewables, the pace with which that is occurring adds to the challenge of ensuring the reliability of the bulk electric system because now we have quite a few large electrical generators that are powered by nuclear energy or coal, and that spinning mass in those generators helps to ensure the reliability of the grid. It's increasingly being replaced by solar power, which is inverted from DC to AC, and that type of uh, generation uh, makes it a little bit more challenging to be able to control the frequency of the electric grid. So. When you think about it, solving all of these challenges, it really requires that we bring much more talent to the industry. Um, And that's why when you think about the opportunities to build a meaningful career in the electric industry, it is absolutely um, outstanding. And it's a tremendous opportunity for our craft workers, our construction managers, project managers, engineers, really anyone who is supporting the energy transition has an opportunity to really leave a positive mark on society and and also to work with these advanced technologies to help enable the transformation of the grid.
0: Thanks, Dale. That was a fantastic overview. Um, Wow. You know, it's so hard to, you know, put that into layman's terms when these are really complex ideas and concepts we're talking about here, but it's really exciting at the same time. I wanted to go on to kind of a a similar question in the survey related to three big concerns uh, that the respondents had for future grid development over the next three to five years. And it looked like um, something came up in your survey that also came up in one of ECNM's surveys, which we surveyed our top 50 electrical contractors, the biggest contractors in the country. Um, and it was supply chain issues for equipment. That came in uh, first in your survey with 53.6% as a concern. And that was consistent with our survey um our respondents noted that delays with material delivery and logistics that was the most pressing issue they said was affecting their ability to finish jobs on time and on budget and then so separately also in both surveys lack of qualified workers came up and dale already touched on that so i wanted to see if you all could talk about these two pain points how do you see them changing or do you see them changing um, in the next few years I know that's a hard one, um, we don't have crystal balls, but any thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I'll take that. And uh, you know, a couple comments just with respect to supply chain is we saw tremendous disruption across all industries with COVID and then also with the war in Ukraine. So uh-huh. there was a lot of supply chain impacts that I don't even know that we really understood how long the supply chain had gotten. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, whenever we entered into this new paradigm, there was a lot of things that we uncovered, but, um, sandwiched on top of that, we've seen tremendous demand in the industry for infrastructure. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had a good handle in the industry on critical elements that impact, uh, supply chain and, and prevent projects from being implemented. And there's been known strategies to try and mitigate those issues. So. An example I could highlight would be large power transformers. Uh, the industry is known for quite some time that, you know, buying a large power transformer is a long process and it takes a long time to manufacture those assets. Right. So there's a lot of effort in planning, in upfront planning to make sure that you have that supply chain secured. What we've seen uh, is that those constraints have migrated into many other elements associated with projects, and it's a very fluid situation that we're dealing with on a regular basis, and it changes from week to week. Examples that, that we see is uh, you know pole-mounted transformers we're seeing that in some cases, driving a project critical path, something that would be inconceivable a few years mm-hmm. ago, but we're seeing it today. Um, and so for us, what we what we look to do is one, maintain visibility of the market in real time with our procurement organization. So we're always looking at, you know, working with our vendors, what is the supply chain issues that are out there? Uh, two, we work to try and, um, secure the supply chain. So to the extent that we can do some standardization and projects and so forth, what we wanna do is try and do pre-buying of equipment and work with vendors to make sure we have agreements uh, to secure that supply chain. And then the third thing I would highlight is, you know, understanding uh, policy changes that impact projects. So Black & Veatch is a very large constructor in the solar industry. And uh, there was a lot of uh, changes in the PV panel supply chain, as an example, that we had to stay on top of and understand uh, in order to implement our project. So a lot of that was policy driven from uh, regulation, government regulation, with uh, making sure there was you know, no workforce issues in, in China that were building the panels, <laughs> also yeah. uh, anti-dumping measures and so forth. So we, we've taken a proactive view to understand what those issues are, and then make sure that we're informing our clients and also trying to mitigate the issues to the extent we can. From a standpoint of this improving, uh, what we are seeing is a lot of investment in domestic production, uh, more so than we ever have. And I think we see that not only in the electrical se- sector, but industry-wide Uh, for instance, uh, chips, we're seeing the CHIPS Act come into play and a lot of domestic chip manufacturing come on, uh, Mm -hmm. being planned to come online in the future. But we're seeing it with electrical infrastructure. We're seeing it with batteries. And we expect that, you know, those investments are going to pay off eventually. But that type of investment has a long runway, and it takes a long time to build uh, manufacturing capabilities, Mm -hmm. along with the skills of workforce needed to to work in those factories, so uh, we do see improvement, but it certainly has a long runway.
0: That's definitely a good point. Um, one one example from our survey, one of the the contractors was talking about how you know a, a lead time on a generator is about forty weeks, and like you say, it just depends on what you're talking about. So hopefully, this will get better in the future, but it's not like it's going to happen overnight. So uh, it's probably important, you know, trickling down to our readers who are the people who are designing the projects, installing the equipment or maintaining it, um, it is important for them to understand this big picture as well, because otherwise you're just saying things like, well, supply chain, you know, and nobody understands what that really means. So um, that's a really important point to make.
4: And and one thing I would add there is, I think it's important also for contractors and, you know, like Black and & Veatch and your readers to understand that, um, you know, there's, there's an ability to work with clients to make sure they understand the risks, and then also to look at how you're mitigating those risks, um, because uh, you know we we do see lead times that are changing dramatically, and you know you you need to make sure that you're um, communicating those issues with clients and and your uh, your buyers of your of your services. And what we have seen is there is an ability and appetite for, for folks to understand these issues that were, are happening and uh, accommodate them to some extent um, due to the, you know, the unique situation we are in the market that right. we're in right now.
0: It's definitely important to communicate that. Uh, like you said, the, the PV panel example, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even know about that. So that's not even a factor they would consider. So that's, that's such a great point. Did anybody else have any thoughts on that?
1: Ellen, you brought up uh, labor and the constraints around labor, and, and, right. and that's the other piece of it as well. And you know, we're certainly seeing that both in construction and professional areas from craft employees to field uh, construction oversight, um, and really all of the different areas that help us to be able to engineer, procure, and construct our projects. So, you know, one of the things that we're doing among many is investing in training programs by establishing apprenticeship programs to bring people in to the solar industry. That, you know, the solar industry provides a great opportunity to bring craft workers in from other parts of uh, the economy so that they can get a skill and then they can progress into uh, more challenging areas. So, we're doing that, we're doing partnerships with educational institutions. Um, As well, you know, the other thing is really retention. I think everybody, uh, especially in the post-COVID pandemic era, you know, is focused on retention of, you know, our talented workforce. And so for us, that's about new training programs, ensuring that we've got knowledge transfer, and then figuring out what are the benefits that our employees uh, prefer most so that we can uh, retain them as a company while at the same time supporting the growth that we have as an enterprise. Um, you know, we're accelerating higher uh, hiring in areas where we anticipate growth. Uh, we're certainly doing that in our renewables uh, solutions, as you know, certainly Kevin and uh, others can talk about. And uh, the final thing I'd say is, you know, we're focused on workforce diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, you know, it's really critical that we ensure that our workers reflect the communities and our clients that we serve. That helps us to continue to innovate. And, uh, you know, when you put all that together, this is just a really wonderful opportunity for people to come into the electric industry and and we're excited to help enable them.
0: That's that's great. And it's such a unique time, like you said, like no, at no other time, you know, in our memories can we think of a time when these kinds of projects were going to be coming the electrical industry was going to be this, um, you know, important. So it that's definitely going to need to occur. Um, and so that's good to hear. When you're talking about the training, do you recruit, obviously, solar is different than wind and then other types of things? Or are you trying to cross-train people so that they can, you know, do all types of different renewable work? Or how, how are you addressing that?
1: We, we are, and others can comment. But, um, you know, for... Um, When you think about the past um, 20 years, there there has been a significant build out in conventional power generation capacity, Uh, combined, you know, combined cycle uh, gas turbine technology plants uh, has been the standard, and so we've, we've built up a lot of talent in those areas with our craft and with our construction oversight and with our engineers, and so um, given that that is shifting more toward renewables, uh, solar uh, PV as an example, we are cross-training them to do those, uh, those type of projects as well, so it's an exciting time to broaden the skills in the industry.
0: Awesome, yes, definitely. Okay, I kind of, I wanted to dive into the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act a little further, a couple of questions on that, like that's a huge topic right now. And to preface it um, in our discussion, you know, I I had talked about our top 50 survey of electrical contractors, and as far as that goes, the Infrastructure Act funding, um, 70% of our respondents uh, said they expected this to have a mild to moderate impact on their work. And then 23% expected it to have no impact on their work, which was a little bit surprising to me um, as far as, you know, revenue boost goes. So for your survey, it looks like um, I was wondering if Leslie, you probably in particular could speak on this, uh, give us an overview of how that may pan out in the pipeline. This is obviously going to be spread out over many years. Um, So how likely is it for electrical contractors and engineers to even, first of all, get this type of work? Um, and then, as far as utility grid modernization projects go, how is that going to evolve, or how do you see it evolving uh, over the next several
3: years? Sure. So um, I'll I'll give a little bit of of context for the Infrastructure Investment and Job Act, which, by the way, is also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So Mm -hmm. it was signed in November of 2021, and it it contains five major areas of funding, Uh, grid resiliency, advanced transportation, clean energy technologies, including things like battery energy storage and long-duration energy storage, Uh, fiber and telecommunications, and water infrastructure. Out of that, about $30 billion is targeted for grid resiliency and largely focused on transmission and distribution, project development, and upgrades that will enable clean energy. This law also expands um, existing DOE authorities. Um, So the Department of Energy, what they Um, What they've done in the past, it expands those authorities to provide um, new tools and funding to the department to accelerate the modernization, expansion, and resilience of the nation's electric grid. Um, This includes things like $2.5 billion for transmission facilitation program, uh, $3 billion for the expansion of the Smart Grid Investment Grant program, and more than $10 billion in grants to states, tribes, and utilities to enhance grid resilience and prevent power outages, much like Dale talked about earlier in this podcast. The funding is geared towards projects that are over and above what utilities are doing today um, and what they've committed to spend in these areas. Um, So in my mind, uh, that equates to um, a requirement of significant skilled labor. Um, increases uh, like those of your audience. So I I am also surprised that um, that some folks in your survey projected little to no impact um, to their profitability. Some of the programs like grid hardening and smart grid investment grants are expected to run for five years. Others like the transmission facilitation program are expected to run longer. Um, So this is not a a year or two. This is um, a five-year commitment. The administration of of these uh, programs has gotten off to a little bit of a slow start as the Department of Energy organized around administration, but the funding should begin uh, to result in real projects this year. Um, And we've seen at Black and Beach, um, uh, our clients uh, requesting assistance for uh, both going after funding as well as in preparation for those projects to start. Um, and, And I see that. Uh, that amount of of funding and projects increasing over the next four years, so um, so I I, f- I feel like there's going to be sust- substantial new projects that this will drive. There's also some money in uh, the the bipartisan infrastructure law for um, the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, and that's twenty four and a half billion dollars. And that's really to grow and accelerate the scale deployment of new energy technologies like energy storage, carbon capture, hydrogen, things like that. Um, and so these technologies will require a whole host of experienced engineers and technicians, not only in the electrical field. So I know we've focused mainly on um, the, the impact to electrical uh, craft and engineering, um, but also in process, mechanical and chemical engineering, pipe fitting, welding, um, that's just a few areas that, that these technologies um, will touch. Um, and many of these skills are used today in both conventional generation and oil and gas industries. And so that also provides us more of an opportunity to apply um, experience gained in other industries in new ways.
0: So have you already, you, you you mentioned you'd already, you've already had a, not a surge, but you've had interest from your clients saying, Mm -hmm. how do we get involved in this? And you've already started that like this year we'll start. Then do you see it ramping up? You said over the next five to 10 years, is there like a target
3: date when this is all supposed to be completed? So, uh, the, Bipartisan infrastructure law, m- many of the programs are five-year programs. Okay. Um, however, there's also the Inflation Reduction Act um, that makes, it's re- the largest investment in energy and climate change in U.S. history. Um, and that's almost $180 billion um, that was set aside for clean energy and transmission programs. And that's a 10-year program that starts mm-hmm. in 2024. Um, so while uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law is a five-year program. This is going to add six more years to that, since it's starting a year later um, to, for that funding to come out. Um, and and so I think that you're going to see strong uh, both strong growth and um, sustainment of of those craft jobs uh, for the foreseeable future.
0: Okay, it's just so big. It's kind of I know it's hard for me to wrap my mind around all this. Like it's there's so many components. It's so big. Okay. So obviously. The more people know about this, the more they educate themselves, the more they talk to the people that they work with and collaborate with, um, it's going to be very important to know how this works. So that's going to be an ongoing discussion, I'm sure. Um, it looks like there was a little bit of a disconnect in your survey as it was in ours. Um, when you looked at the results, of, it's a there were 55.3% of your respondents said that they expected this infrastructure funding to drive some of their investment decisions. However, 40%. said they did not expect it to drive their investment decisions. So what do you make of that? Or, you know, is that just kind of a, a fluke?
2: We've seen many, many clients of ours going after infrastructure funding. Last week or two weeks ago, it came out with just how many hydrogen hub applications came into the DOE and how many they're focusing in on. And it's an enormous number of entities across many different states trying to bring these hubs together. At the same time, we hear over and over again that working the working with the Department of Energy can be burdensome. Uh, there are a lot of rules. There's a lot of steps you have to go through, and it's slow. You know, it can be very slow. So some of the the best projects we've seen in many of the clean energy space they're they're moving ahead because they're trying to get a speed to market advantage. They're trying to get off takers signed up and get to them that end product, whether it's electrons or it's a molecule such as hydrogen. Uh-huh. So that infrastructure bill with the way it's set up to evaluate so many different applications and then they're gonna choose and then you go through uh, front-end engineering. You know, In some cases, it's still another couple of years before you're really putting a shovel in the ground and building.
1: Right. And
2: so the, the timeline of that money doesn't necessarily fit what a lot of our clients and what a lot of the the big movers we see in industry wanna do to get out ahead of this this clean energy transition. On top of that, uh, as Leslie mentioned, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed last year, and that has been incredible in the amount of projects that we're seeing move based on that. And in fact, in one case, we had a client tell us directly with the Inflation Reduction Act and what it's doing for pro- prices of offtake, you also almost don't need the, the infrastructure bill, right? That money could could go back and put more towards the Inflation Reduction Act because that is making uh, the end product more affordable. So it makes it attractive for producers and it also makes it very attractive to offtakers. Now, that that's also not easy money, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, Uh, The DOE expects for projects to be both commercially set up well, but also to be technically de-risked. And we have a project, the first one to get uh, a loan guarantee in a decade. It was the the ACES Delta Advanced Clean Energy Storage Project in Delta, Utah. Uh So it got a $504 million loan guarantee. Essentially, the debt for the project is coming from the DOE. Okay. And... That's, that's through their loan guarantee program, which the Inflation Reduction Act also significantly raised the amount of money of that. That project got through first time in a decade because you know, our client, Aces Delta, with Mitsubishi Power and, and Magnum Development, they did an excellent job going through all the steps with all the stakeholders to lower the risk of the project, develop the project such that they got very strong definition and show that it had been, it had been de-risked. And so to to get either Inflation Reduction Act or the infrastructure bill, that's a DOE DOE expectation and it takes time.
0: Definitely. And the people who are savvy about those things are obviously going to be ahead of the game. Like you said, Um, it also pointed out to me in the survey, uh, 32 percent of your respondents said one of the reasons that their organization may not be taking advantage of this funding is it was administratively too burdensome. So that's basically what you just said. So you agree with that. And you know, any any thoughts on that about the they're saying it's administratively too burdensome. So that may be why they're shying away from that?
2: Yeah, most, most definitely. I mean, when you're you're working with uh, the US government, there are a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross and a lot of special forms and and work that you have to go through. And it just takes a long time and it's an investment on the part of the company, especially if they haven't done it before. So we have a federal group. We do a lot of work for the US government. We have all these plans in place. We have our rates in place. We know how to report out. And so for us, it's just another way of doing projects. But if that's not something you do in your your day-to-day business, you're gonna have to invest in consultants and really just the change out and how you execute work and how you report out work to fit those requirements.
0: Absolutely. So, a little bit more on that. Um, could you give me some just highlights of, you know, this is such a big, big act. I'm, there's so much involved in this. How likely is it that all of these goals will be achieved? Um, what are some of the big goals? I, I picked out 100% clean and electricity by 2035, net zero emissions by 2050. Um, I think it's what, 500,000 electric vehicle charging infrastructure stations. Um, so do you have any thoughts on, you know, I obviously we can't solve all this today in a podcast, but you know, what are the steps to get to some of those huge, um, goals and expectations?
2: I, I think you hit the two biggest and hundred percent clean energy by 2035. Okay. Net zero mentions by 2050. And just to be absolutely candid,
0: mm-hmm. we're not on
2: pace to meet that. Yeah, uh, right. we are moving very fast in this transition, black and beach we're going to double our number of execution teams building out solar projects this year. Wow. Um, we have substantially grown that over the last five years, and we're going to continue to substantially grow the number of teams we have executing solar projects to reach that twenty-five thirty-five goal, though, you have to build and build fast across a number of technologies. Uh, When we set goals like that and when goals get set like that, one of the things that can sometimes get overlooked is the time to develop a project and actually get to commercial operation and export an electron. You know, if you're looking at a year to two years to permit, to develop, to get financial approval, and then two to three years to build, even three years is, is very much reality for simpler projects like solar now with some of the supply chain issues we have. Right. And more complex projects like hydrogen can push out well beyond three years from the time you put a shovel in the ground to the time you're exporting a project. So now we're talking about, you know, a five plus year time frame from I have a concept, I want to go after it, and I actually have a, a commercialized project. So we're looking at 12 years to 2035. In addition to just much, uh, just a huge build out in renewable energy, solar and wind. We need to move to clean storage with that. So we're building out batteries, but we need long duration storage. We need hydrogen storage, kinetic, thermal. Uh, Nuclear is a technology that is very much anticipated to be a part of the energy transition. small mods reactors are moving well. But when you look at the pace those are going, the first projects are really going to come online around 2030. Mm -hmm. And then companies are going to make investment decisions on those next set of projects after they see those those prototypes, those initial projects test out well. And then to bring all this amount of renewables, energy storage uh, into play, you need huge growth in grid, uh, because it's going to change where we're injecting power, how we're moving it around, how the grid is storing it. And we're also going to need to clean up some generation as backup. When we have two-day events, one-week events, or even we have excess renewables uh, in the course of shoulder seasons that we need to transition to the summer, technologies such as carbon capture come into play to help us reach that 100% clean energy goal. And those projects are, are really just in early front-end engineering. None have gone into construction yet. So let's go add five years to those going into construction. So. I know Black and Veatch, we're really excited about the pace of the energy transition, but to reach the 2035 goal, the 2050 goal, we're gonna have to accelerate even more quickly into this transformation. And we're gonna have to tackle and succeed in many of these challenges our teams mentioned today around skilled labor, uh, availability uh, of equipment, and ultimately making it easier for companies that want to go in this transition to to get funding and to get uh, Department of Energy loan guarantees or infrastructure funds as part of their project.
0: Okay. And obviously, Black and Beach is at the top of this. You guys are experts. Um, You know more than anyone about this. So it is a good reality check for at least our readers and listeners to realize like everything that's involved in this, what they need to find out, what they need to know. It's not It's definitely not simple, but um, it's definitely fascinating and really, really exciting. So it looks like we're getting um, fairly close to time here. So I wanted to ask one final question about electric vehicles. That's a really important topic to our readers. Again and again, we see they're very interested in that, uh, building out this uh, national electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Uh, So let's talk about how do you think supply chain issues are going to affect uh, the components, batteries, all the different things that's, that's going to go into that. Let's start there. And then I kind of wanted to move into what you think the biggest challenges will be, uh, specifically load re- requirements for like, how is that actually all going to work? It sounds really good in theory, but how how is that actually going to occur?
3: Sure. So Black and Beach has been engaged in the EV um, industry, um, and electrification of transportation in general um, for for many years. And, and uh, we're leaders in that space. So happy to talk about this. So with the goal of building 500,000 chargers and getting half of the U.S. drivers switching to electro- electric vehicles, $12.5 billion um, was made available with the bipartisan infrastructure law for the charging infrastructure, the vehicles and, and things like buses for fleets. And so from a supply chain perspective, just like Kevin had mentioned earlier, um, there were significant supply chain challenges uh, both from uh, the war in Ukraine and from COVID. And so some of those, some of those challenges are starting to come unlocked, but the, it's still um, resulting in longer lead times than what we had seen in the past for, um, for the equipment. Uh, Things like batteries, you know, they use precious metals like lithium, cobalt, manganese, and nickel, and so getting access to those minerals um, at scale Um, is increasing the prices significantly. So as an example, raw material costs for EVs more than doubled um, during the pandemic. And so material costs in March of 2020 were about $3,300 per vehicle. And in May of 2022, that had increased to $8,200 per vehicle. So um, you can see the impact that um, just... Not only supply chain, but just capacity constraints for for some of the more rare materials uh, okay. can cause. There are some things uh, that that the industry is doing to mitigate some of those challenges. The buy American requirements will have a short-term impact over the next two to three years. But long-term, uh, the impact should reduce as new American production comes online for both EV and grid equipment, because okay. um, the impact to the EV industry isn't just from EV equipment. It's also from the equipment required uh, for the grid. Okay. Um, and so some of the things that um, the industry is doing, uh, the electric vehicle OEMs, they're working to onshore their battery production to meet the Buy America requirements. Some uh, some manufacturers like Nissan have had their battery batteries built in the United States um, from the beginning. Others are rapidly bringing those onshore. So that should help mitigate the impacts of that requirement in the next several years. Um, and for the grid's side, I know Kevin talked about transformers have been a real challenge um, okay. for American content. They have a short-term relief bill that is going to adjust that requirement until American production can increase. So that will help, um, but it, it really is going to take um, time for, for those capacities to ramp up to where they can meet the need easily um, okay. and get supply chains back to where they were pre-COVID.
0: When are we supposed to have these 500 charging stations
3: um, in place? Like, what is that goal there? I believe, and I'm I'm not 100% certain, but I believe that's in the next five years as well.
0: And do you think Um, that is realistic? Like, do you all, I mean, you guys are experts. Do you think that can actually happen? Is that like completely not doable?
3: There's some challenges. I think there's, I think there's opportunity for Uh, scale deployments of um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. I'll talk about that. However, there are some challenges um, in the industry to to being able to deploy and and provide electricity to those charging stations. Mm -hmm. Um, And to start on the energy side, just for bulk electric um, capacity, many utilities took a conservative outlook for um, electrification capacity needs in their planning processes over the last few years, um, and and to be fair to them, uh, that's because there was there was uncertainty of when this market was actually going to take off, uh, right. both for electrification of transportation as well as industry, and so you know utilities are are challenged by not being able to proactively build capacity, they have to have real need um, to do so. So there's there's been some, there's now challenges to to build that capacity quickly enough just overall. And then when you get down to individual projects, um, the challenge becomes very local, because you don't need bulk power um, for an electric vehicle charger, you need power at that location. Mm -hmm. So ensuring that you have the grid infrastructure and the capacity available in that area becomes even harder to predict um, when uh, from a growth perspective and a planning perspective. Um, And so there's some changes needed in in how that process works for utilities to allow them maybe some more leniency on how they build that capacity. There are other things that can be done um, with on-site generation and storage uh, to support that capacity. So If if a company wants to electrify a fleet and they don't have enough grid capacity, they can um, install storage to use off-peak electricity to power their chargers um, during on-peak hours, those kinds of things to level to level out their um energy requirements and, and so there's a lot of things that can be done but it is going to be a challenge to meet that goal i believe
0: right like you touched on it i did notice in your survey it said that only about half of the your survey respondents indicated that they were currently ready to enable new ev loads over the next year so do you do you see that does that yes. make sense to you yes okay So it looks like we're out of time. I want to thank our guests so much today for sharing industry insight, knowledge, and experience with us today on Modernizing the Electric Grid. This was a great discussion, something we could talk about for hours and hours. So um, I'm sure our readers will want some more follow-up at some point, whether it's in uh, written articles, uh, online articles, or more podcasts. So I want to really thank you for that. In closing, I'd also like to thank Senior Associate Editor, Ellie Coggins, and Associate Editor, Michael Morris, for editing and putting these podcasts together, making this valuable information available to all of our readers and listeners. For more information, visit our website at bcmweb.com. This podcast is produced by ACNM Magazine, part of the portfolio of Endeavor Business Media Publications. Well, I think that's it for now. I'm Ellen Parsons signing off of ECNM On Air. Please let me know if you have any podcast topics you'd like to listen to in the future. And don't forget to check out the members only portal on our website for more podcasts and other great content resources for electrical construction professionals. Thank you and have a great day.